You're only going to do well at this sort of activity if you have the support of your leaders in the university itself. We've always had that. Cubis is a separate company, but it's historically had involvement from Pro Vice-Chancellors for Research and Enterprise, the Registrar, and the Vice-Chancellor often in the past. So they've been very involved and interested in this area of activity and seen it as part of the Queen's success story. Brian McCall is the CEO of Cubis, the tech transfer company of of Queen's University Belfast, and he joins us today to discuss why the TTO continuously finds itself at the top of league tables, why a centralised TTO wouldn't make sense even in a place as small as Northern Ireland, and what drew him back into university commercialisation after heading his own startup. Ryan, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Terry. How are you doing? Not too bad today. To start with, can you give me an overview of Cubis? Maybe give me some key figures as well. Sure. Okay. So Cubis is a tech transfer company, the commercialization arm of Queen's University in Belfast. So it creates companies from the technology base. About 90 companies created since it was formed in 1984. So it was one of the original first out the blocks tech transfer companies before this was really an important agenda for a mainstream university activity. Of those 90 or so companies, there are around about 50 that still exist. So it gives you a hint at the survival rate. Obviously, there's a bit of a power curve in terms of the fortunes of those companies from at one end, a 250 floated company, the largest spin out in the UK, according to the recent Bowhurst report. And then the other end, companies that are just getting off the ground or haven't quite found their repeatable business model. But nonetheless, still a relatively good sort of survival rate. Of that 50 or so, there are probably, I think there are about 40. I have to kind of check every now and then because we're always creating new companies and hopefully exiting companies as well. But around about 40 in the portfolio at the moment. Three of those are PLCs, sort of hinted at one of them already, the largest so Kanos is on the main market and we have Fusion IP actually. And then the third one is one that's exited. That company went private and was sold to Oxford Instruments. That's Andor. But interestingly, those three, although that might not sound very many, in the context of Northern Ireland, that's the majority of floated companies in recent history, or at least half of them. So that might hint at some of the importance of the work of Cubis in the context of building the local economy. They are impressive numbers for any universities, but yes, for a relatively small country, regions such as Northern Ireland, it's definitely very impressive numbers. I was just going to add to that, actually. Work rate is probably important as well. So we add to that stock of new companies four or five a year, which again puts us around about in the top 10 of university company creation. If you can do that by work rate. We'll come back to issues of the value and, and I think there's more interesting things to be said about Cubis in that context later. That's fair. Are there any changes in how you work now that you think or hope will become permanent once we've made it through the pandemic? We'd sort of moved to a lean, agile approach, a sprint style approach. And I mean I know that people complain about the jiraization of the world and everything being run through tickets and platforms and so on and so forth. But it's a complicated space, it's a complicated activity, and it takes a lot of people to make one of these things work. So I think some of that move towards collaborative platforms 
um, to those sort of more agile processes actually put us in a good place prior to the pandemic. I think I think some organizations or some teams may have struggled in terms of how do we manage all of this? We can't all get in the room and meet each other and whiteboard things. We had already, if you like, adopted quite a lot of agile uh, methodologies and online platforms and just ways of working, which I think sort of helped us bear the brunt of the remote working, which we're still doing, actually. And, you know, many people are having to go into labs, etc., to keep spin-out activity going. But for us as a tech transfer organisation, we're pretty able to still continue to work this we also had to take what's very much at the heart of our approach and we think some of our success is also the enterprise programs that we run, the customer validation, customer discovery programs that we run in conjunction with an alliance of other universities and with Innovate UK. And that was a program that looked very much like getting a lot of entrepreneurs, early career researchers, etc., into hotels, you know, periodically giving some of the people participating in those programs very large travel budgets, if you like, so that they had no excuse to get to any potential customer or user or regulator across the globe to validate their idea. That was very effective. It really did accelerate the way that we got to the bottom of whether an idea had some value or some interest or whether it really met a, you know, a need or solved a pain. If you like, it was fairly expensive and it also well, it didn't have a terribly good carbon footprint. So we were forced, yeah. a little, little bit embarrassing, when we realised from the Twitter stream how effectively you know, our entrepreneurs and early career researchers were literally getting to every potential customer across the globe with these tweets from every corner. But we managed to take that all online. We run a number of programmes in this space and we've been able to use that travel budget much more effectively to develop new digital methodologies to help early starts validate their ideas. And so those are things that I think we just wouldn't row back from. When we go back to the world as it will look like post-pandemic, whatever that looks like, we will have learnt new, more efficient ways of doing things. And some of the digital approaches to tech transfer will just have been accelerated. And I'm hoping that will have benefits. I mean, maybe that's something we'll pick up later in the discussion. But creating a slightly more flat globe in terms of access to finance, VC discussions, etc. is something I'm hoping will be retained as well. There is also a big uh, change that's happened recently, which is Brexit, which is actually complete now. There's a range of special economic provisions for Northern Ireland. How, if at all, is that new reality impacting your work? It may be a bit early to tell. I'm sort of expecting it to crunch into our reality more readily than it has perhaps in terms of VC funding, etc., that doesn't seem to have played out. I do have worries. One of the things that is particular about Northern Ireland is we're on a, a different piece of geography from the rest of, uh, <laughs> yeah. of of the UK, and that plays out in all sorts of ways. If you like, I tend to say we're about as far away from halls of power, at least a UK context. In some senses, it's flatter in Northern Ireland. You have easier access to government over here, but certainly in terms of equity capital, all that reports will show that you know, half of equity investment happens in and around uh, London, certainly the southeast. So we've always been very grateful for interventions that have helped, not totally, but helped, slightly helped level that out. Things like Invest Northern Ireland's proof of concept funds, you know, really do help us very early on de-risk some of our early stage opportunities and therefore sort of redress the balance a little bit in terms of getting back some of that lack of access to capital. 
some of those funds are ERDF funded in origin, and I'm not quite sure. I haven't got to the bottom of whether Prosperity Fund will adequately make up for that. So it's possible that we might see some downsides to that. We're still working out the implications in terms of accessing European funding, Horizon Europe, etc. Of course, we're a 40 minutes drive or whatever it is to a land border with Europe. And in some sense, it's very easy for us to incorporate across the border and keep going if that proves necessary. But we'll see what the details are in terms of UK access to Horizon Europe. Then on the upside, there's a single market. So being part of the single market and various other provisions might be advantages. And I'm hoping there will be advantages in terms of maybe joint venture, foreign direct investment opportunities with some of our commercial provisions. So a bit early to know what the balance sheet looks like. We'll be reviewing that very carefully and making sure that it doesn't slow us down. You've touched a little bit on this earlier on, but how would you say Cubis is performing compared to Northern Irish peers and peers in the UK, well, in Great Britain, I should say, when it comes to entrepreneurship? It's a bit of an unfair question in in the Northern Irish context. There's only two universities (laughs) and we are the only Russell Group University, research intensive university. So respect to my colleagues in Ulster University, we work with them very closely on a lot of commercialization activity. There's a marked difference in terms of IP capacity, R&D capacity, which would make it a bit of an unfair comparison. That said, I think collectively we do, both the universities do pretty well, actually. I mean, one of the more recent benchmarks that gives us a you know, pretty good feedback is the Octopus Ventures ranking of all yeah. universities in the UK. And we have topped that both years that it's run. So that's not a blip in the pan. I think Ulster actually came, I think, 16th or something like that from memory. I haven't got the report in front of me, but it indicates that there's something in the Northern Irish context that tends towards efficiency and leanness. Because, of course, that report really was a measure of return on investment. If you give Queen's or even Ulster a pound of research funding, what will they translate that into? And very clear evidence, we're more efficient than many of our peers. But also, even if you did it on an aggregate basis, you know, a gross basis, that octopus report does reflect efficiency. It does reflect the size of the research base, how much in, how much out. But, you know, even on other measures, I was reading the Industrial Strategy Task Group report, which looked at the impact of universities on their local economies. So mainly in terms of spin outs, what's the turnover that's contributed to the local economy? And Queen's and Northern Ireland, again, Ulster in the mix there, come second only after Oxford and Oxfordshire. So you know, in some sense, it doesn't matter how you cut the data, whether it's jobs created, whether it's the turnover contributed to the local economy, whether it's the number of entities we create, whether it's the return for those investors, we float towards the top, sometimes number one, sometimes in the top three, four, five, and so on and so forth. So I think there's a mixed bag of metrics that show however you want to choose your data. And people will argue about this and pick their favorites. You know, we're, we're relatively relaxed because we tend to perform well on those. We've modeled ourselves against KEF and we perform well, particularly in the IP commercialization. We're in the top decile. I think we can hand on heart say we've performed reasonably well. Yeah, clearly. Does Queen's have any particular strengths or do you have any specific challenges? I know you mentioned being very far away from London. I'm asked this question a few times, so I probably should have a really sort of rapid 
but I reflect on it each time. I mean, I tend to go to the history. Part of it, I, I'll start chronologically. Cubis was out of the box, as I said, in the introduction in 84. So it was one of the first out there. It's had institutional support from the university. It's interesting because that's reflected in, if you take the KE Knowledge Exchange Concordat or the Macmillan Report, it points to the importance of institutional leadership. People have cottoned on to, you're only going to do well at this sort of activity if you have the support of your leaders in the university itself. And we've always had that. So Cubis is a separate company, has its own board, but it's historically had involvement from Pro Vice Chancellors for Research and Enterprise, the Registrar, the Vice Chancellor often in the past. So they've been very involved and interested in this area of activity and seen it as part of the Queen's success story. But it's also had the sense to leaven that with external entrepreneurial support. And that's really why the Cubist board still exists, even though the company has been pulled very much more tightly to the university. We have an independent board of entrepreneurs who guard against, in my view anyway, the bureaucratization or the committeeization, if that's even a word, of this. Um, <laughs> it is now. <laughs> it is now, of this sort of activity. So the interesting thing about Northern Ireland, it's not six degrees of separation. It's one degree of separation. It's a small nation. You know, many people know each other and there's a real sort of desire to pull together. And so a lot of people sit on our boards and help on our investment committee. So if you go through the history of Cubis and its success in many of these metrics, it'll just come down to individual decisions made at critical points, whether to back a company with some cash or to do something. And a lot of that comes down to some very savvy input from external entrepreneurs on our investment committee, on our board and so on and so forth. For me, that's kind of part of the secret source, institutional support, but not overreaching and taking over the area of activity and allowing it some external entrepreneurial support to keep it commercial. It's more than just the participation of those university senior figures. About, I don't know, 12, 15 years ago, but before my time, the registrar at the time took what was quite a brave move, because this was very uncommon in those days, to put aside a few million pounds to invest in our startups. So obviously, as is the typical model, universities will take a little slug of equity for putting the IP in and creating the thing, getting it going. But it wasn't very typical back in those days for them to actually have a little fund to invest in those companies. And that allowed us to back our own. You know, it was quite important. And we still do. We still invest reasonably heavily. And often investors look to us to do that. You know, they want privates involved. They sometimes want the team to show some skin in the game in terms of finance, but they expect us to put some money in. And and often that acts as the glue to make a round happen. Sometimes it acts as the bridge funding to keep things going. And often it's that patient capital that allows us to support our own. That's the historical performance factors. And more recently, I put it down to it's the programs that we've adopted. So my metric of this is it's a complicated it's difficult, it takes a village to raise a startup. But when it comes down to it, in some sense, it's simple, it's threefold. Too many ideas, you need to validate the good ones, the ones that are going to have some traction. You need to build a team around it with external entrepreneurs. And you need, through achieving both of those, to access finance. And we run, I think I might have mentioned these already, sort of customer discovery, lean startup validation courses in conjunction with a network called North by Northwest, which is ourselves, Ulster, Manchester University, uh, Liverpool, Leeds, Sheffield, Edinburgh, 
hope I've not forgotten then, it's the members of that. We work very collaboratively with them and with Helix, which is our delivery partner. And we've spent quite a lot of time building these programs. It was interesting. It was a bit of a revelation for me. This is the sort of whole, harks back to the whole Steve Blank, Lean Startup mantra. And I remember going on some training in London. We started this actually, playing around with this with Imperial College back in the day, going to a training course and and thinking, I'm a tech transfer person. What am I doing here getting involved in (laughs) enterprise training? Do I really want to do this? You know, we've been doing that for about five, six years, and it's been absolutely the thing that's turbocharged what we do because that first problem, validation, the best way of solving that is having a program where you teach the teams that are involved to go out and talk to, you know, say 100 potential customers, regulators, and so on and so forth. And when they get to the 50, 60, 70, 80 mark, something magical happens. They either find out that there's something in this or there's not something in this or they have to move in a slightly different direction. So those programs are really, really fundamental to our ability to accelerate our activity and pick out the best opportunities. They're also attached to the support that we get from Innovate UK is through those programs is absolutely a game changer, the sort of follow-on funding from some of their programs. If an early startup has performed well and demonstrated that it's got early traction, evidence product market fit through some of these programs, that it's developed a good team, it's not just an academic trying to do this on their own, then it gives them access to non-dilutive cash, which really turns on the, the VCs. The VCs love programs like this because, you know, for the first time at a seed stage, they can see really, really intensive evidence of engagement with the market in a way that universities t- typically hadn't done. In fact, many startups haven't done. You know, they can see that it's been screened by other entrepreneurs. They can see a team built around it and they can see a slug of non-dilutive money, which de-risks it. And to some extent that helps overcome some of those geographical issues that we touched on earlier, that VCs didn't, typically they weren't falling over themselves to get out of London and come to Northern Ireland. Now they're they're more likely to do that for a couple of reasons. One is the stuff that's coming out of Queen's all of it will have been heavily validated in terms of whether there's any interest in this in the market or not. We're not just touting technology. And secondly, actually, there's a club of us. So if you're talking to Queens and North by Northwest, you're talking to our fellow TTO university members as well. So you've got access. If you come to one of our events, you'll see the best of stuff that's coming through Queens, Ulster, Liverpool, Manchester, Leeds, Sheffield. So it's a very efficient way of doing things. Do you still primarily rely on VC funding from the UK? Do you have investors coming from across the border or more international than that as well? It's predominantly the UK. I think what you find is for some of that very early stage investment at seed stage, particularly places like Northern Ireland, there are still sort of quasi-public, I don't know whether they like being described as this, but quasi-public VC funds in that some of the money that they get comes from the Northern Irish government or from Europe or wherever through Department of Economy or not invest Northern Ireland. And they can be very powerful in getting things going. But what we've learned, what they've learned to do actually as well, is to start syndicating those, either at seed stage or at series A. You know, we've done some deals recently which have had some very significant investment from US VCs, very specialist VCs that we hadn't interacted with before. We've had European and South African. And so we have had some fairly chunky investments from outside of the UK, but we probably tend to start locally and build it out, if you like. 
You've mentioned a shared platform for TTOs to attract investors. There was another initiative called Innovation Commons. Did this morph into North by Northwest or is that a separate program? The Innovation Commons lives on as the DNA of what we do now, really. I mean, perhaps I'll give you a little bit of history of the Innovation Commons. I was Director of Commercialization at Leeds University. I arrived just, I think it was the same week that Bear Stearns went down, 2008 or something like that. So it was the start of the crash and all of a sudden things got very much harder. And if you were reliant on externalized input from venture capitalists, et cetera, that, you know, the world was more complicated for them. They were having to, you know, protect their investments rather than really pulling the boat out. And so it left me in a bit of a quandary. It was by force of necessity, really. I started playing with what would happen if you tried to create a virtual TTO, partly influenced by some of the work that I'd been involved in at Liverpool before that, where we'd been creating what we called grid businesses in those days, which people would now refer to as cloud. We were pioneering the creation of businesses based on lots of computing power, crunch power, storage capacity over the internet. So I was also involved in some research around open innovation. And a lot of that sort of fell handily at the time and created an online platform, which was to try and get as many hands on deck to help me with this difficult period over the financial crash and became useful. And so a series of other universities sort of bought into that. That's partly what I went on to do then. It partly influenced my ventures in commercial domain, software company around innovation platforms. A lot of that still exists in the approach that we deploy in some of these iCure programs in the sense that you will never have all the resource you need within a TTO to do what you need to do. You need access to entrepreneurs externally to bring them in for particular bits of work, to lead companies, to validate things who have very discrete skill sets. And if a series of tech transfer organizations share their connectivity in that respect, you'll just get way more done. If you like, I think it was probably a little bit ahead of its time in the same way that we were piloting cloud businesses before anybody even knew what the cloud was i still don't really know what the cloud (laughs) is (laughs) Uh, but it was i mean i remember you know trying to explain what do you mean we're going to change the way the businesses work by giving them access to crunch power storage capacity through the internet and i think probably now the time is ripe for that i think this will be the next wave of how technology transfer works it will be through these sorts of networks through this ability to get the right skill set at the right time, the ability to access the right funder at the right time is really what is the experiment and the practice which lasted for a good few years around the innovation commons. Do you think, given that it is just you and Ulster University, that a combined tech transfer office would work? Or are you two different still? It's interesting this, because I think every now and then somebody will advance the argument that this is too inefficient. Why don't we create some efficiencies of scale by pulling all of these separate university entities together, you know, usually in some sort of hub and spoke model. And it sounds attractive, it sounds efficient, but I just, the world has moved on. I sort of referred to, you know, the network effect and and using cloud and various things in order to access the skills, the resources, the entrepreneurs, the funding that you need. The world has moved beyond hub and spoke to networks. And so If you pose the question as, could university TTOs work together more effectively? Absolutely, yes. And that's what North by Northwest is all about. We work very tightly together. So every week, every two weeks, ourselves and colleagues from Ulster and Manchester, Liverpool, Leeds, Jefferson, 
We'll all be on exchanging information on how best to do this, how to support each other in various projects, etc. So it's very collaborative, but it's not centralised. They're independent organisations and they experiment and they do little things that work and we find out about it and we pick that up. We do things that work and they find out and pick it up. You don't get that with a centralised system. It gets sclerotic. There's characters I know from BTG, British Technology Group, and, and love, but that experiment didn't work. You know, that was something that people realised, if you like, nationalise that in one big organisation just doesn't give the flex that you need. Because you'll never have enough resource within that central hub-and-spoke organisation. You need to pull in, you know, many, many entrepreneurs, many, many funders. You can only do that through a network in and out, a network that crosses TTOs and universities and other organizations and other individuals, entrepreneurs, etc. You can't employ them all. And if you like, I think the desire to push them all together, I think is well meant. I don't think it would be particularly efficient. I think you could find some smaller universities that, I mean, I mean, smaller in terms of their research base, some of them are very large. So you get very large post-92 universities that I think could probably benefit from a little bit of help from external organisations, you know, North by Northwest, networks of that nature. But it doesn't require pulling them all formally together into one networked organisation. I think that would be incredibly bureaucratic. No, that makes sense. I wasn't necessarily suggesting that we should go down that route. It's France kind of imposed it on their universities with their SAT network, and I'm, I'm always kind of interested to hear whether that could work in I mean, I, I don't know that network terribly well. I mean, so while I used to sort of network quite heavily with European tech transfer organizations, and I haven't for a while, so France tends sometimes, you know, towards a central hub and spoke model. And it's interesting as well, because I think, you know, then you got to sustain that network, that large organization, if you like. And then the question will come, well, sustainability, what does that look like? Should it be a private organization? Does it have to wash its own face? And in here lies an issue. Because this is a really sort of critical space between uh, universities, independent, autonomous, charitable organisations, but which very broad public good value propositions and naked, how do we get return on investment, investors and companies. And getting the balance between those and where the TTO sits in that is really critical. If you imposed on it right you need to start washing your own face you need to be a commercial organization you would probably drive most ttos to act in the way that most investors do which is basically to sit back and wait until somebody's de-risked it whereas ttos by their very purpose are there to take up the hard problems of validation and early stage funding and to be very patient and to have a wider value proposition around creating jobs, creating impact on the local economy, seeing transfer of IP and so on and so forth. And so allowing individual universities and TTOs to work at how they do that is important. That autonomy is probably important to allow them to get the right balance between value creation and value creation for the local economy and actually capturing some of that value to themselves. It's a very, very delicate balance. And if anybody tried to impose that externally I, I think it would mess things up that makes a lot of sense slightly differently but would a, a fund between you and ulster or perhaps even between the north by northwest members work i think that would i think there's a lot of logic in that i mean i think you mentioned part war before and others that have created 
SEIS type funds, so private funds. There's quite a lot of activity around the connecting capability funds from Research England to try and stimulate that in other universities. Most universities just don't have sufficient deal flow to justify these funds. You know, some of them are getting to the tipping point where that will happen. And we're deliberately trying to do that. So as part of that, and in conjunction with our North by Northwest partners, we are looking to launch an SEIS, EIS fund. We'll see whether we get that off the ground. You may hear more about that later. And you know, part of the benefit of that is it will piggyback off this very effective series of validation programs. So if we have iCure, if we're running iCure for Innovate, if we've got our own local versions, smaller versions of that, lighter versions like the Lean Launch program, et cetera, we can run many, many early stage ventures through a very rigorous process of customer discovery. We can make sure that we've got a unified process to building those teams. We've got access to a lot of external entrepreneurs because you know, there's so many universities that are participating in this and Innovate will help out with a bit of non-dilutive funding and so on and so forth. So we're building quite an effective due diligence process and early venture formation process and a process of business planning and de-risking just makes absolute sense to go the next step and tack a fund on the end of that. I think you're right. I think it's in that domain, not at the early stage, in the seed stage. There's a lot of uh, benefit that could be generated by universities getting together and sharing their pipeline into investment funds. Amazing. I look forward to finding out more when there is more information to share. Very soon, we'll share it with you. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. My next question is my favorite one. A lot of people tend to hate it because they don't have a favorite child. But what is your favorite spin-out to have come out of Queen's so far? Yeah, it's a dangerous question, so thank you for that. Um, You're welcome. You know, I'll go out on a limb and I'll try to answer it. I get teased about this, actually. One of my CEOs is probably going to be on the list who teases me about another company being my favorite child. So I'm going to give a (laughs) shout-out to Dara McCart from Sunrise, who used to tease me on this very issue, which is one of the companies that we've spun out most recently. And that one I like because, actually, it got traction very early before we even had thought about spinning it out it got interest in terms of customer purchase we would normally ensure that we inject a really hard bitten entrepreneur to run the company in fact we put a foot on that one for a while we, we sort of delayed it trying to find the entrepreneur to run that company whilst we had people wanting to buy the service so dara who's an academic stepped up to the mark and we put him in as ceo and he's performing extremely well so for that reason, I've got a little bit of a love for that one. The company that used to tease me about was actually Ravana. So this is an ocular drug delivery company. And in some ways, it's really doing well. This is one of the ones that's had some very significant US investment in it and some very large corporate POC collaborations and so on and so forth. And some fantastic global world leader SAB, Scientific Advisory Board, input from world leaders in this space. But it was a hard birth. We went through, I think, three CEOs before we alighted on Michael O'Rourke, who became the CEO for that. And it, it got better at every stage. When we got Michael, he was just unusually well-fitted to drive this forward. More of the typical model in that we brought in an external entrepreneur was really deeply steeped in commercial world of ophthalmology and you know drug delivery and had been in a spin-out before. And part of the reason I quite like that one is we used a very odd or creative, I think is probably a better word, funding strategy. It goes back to what I've said about the difficulties 
raising cash in places like Northern Ireland. So, you know, we worked with the local funders, Techstart and Clarendon and so on and so forth, but we took that on syndicate room and raised a really significant chunk of money for seed at, at that stage in Northern Ireland using some really innovative funding mechanisms. And it's gone on to raise equity in, in the States, et cetera. But, I, you know, I'd mentioned others. I think Catagen probably needs to get a, a mention just because it's going like a rocket. You know, it's really turned around. Deloitte fast, 52 years running. I'm probably really in danger now, annoying many other companies that I've failed to mention. Part of why I like asking the question is because it gets me a bit more of a personal view of what your interests are and the reason why people choose a spin-out, whether it is the growth or if they are interested in pharma and it's a pharma spin-out. So that's more kind of... Yeah, yeah, no, I get that. I mean, sometimes it is very personal. It's very personal in that, you know, you just get on with these people. And one of the things that we have identified, you're always identifying new skills in tech transfer. You know, what are we doing about design? What are we doing about customer discovery? What are we doing about organizational psychology because sometimes the thing that blows these things up is when people don't get on and so when you like and you know respect and, and just get on with the people in these companies it makes a big difference you've mentioned you co-founded a software company yourself been in aerospace manufacturing you've been chairman and director of what is now praxis oral and from uh, starting at university of manchester in 91 you've been in this job for quite a long time now what initially got you interested in tech transfer and what has made you stick around generally and perhaps specifically at Queen's University? Yeah, that's interesting. I'll, I'll do it in reverse order. At Queen's, I never thought I would go back into working for a university. I thought I was um, been out of tech transfer too long or had got the bug at least for private enterprise and running my own company or company in conjunction with partners. The McCall gives it away a little bit. My parents are from the north of Ireland and I've got a lot of family here. So there was a sort of family connection. But more importantly, as part of the pre-sales activity in my software company at the time and there was bits of consultancy I was doing as well I did always track the performance of the universities because often they were on a treadmill they didn't have time to sit back and look at start terms how well are they doing in this things like KEF knowledge exchange framework and all those sort of things didn't really exist and so it was a cheap trick if you like just to sort of get the data visualize it beautifully and show them how they were doing and when I did that Queen's always sort of popped up at the top in this sort of, well, why is Queen's doing so well? I kind of understand. I used to tap some of the people at Cubis on the shoulder before I joined it, say, what's going on at Cubis and at Queen's? And I know some of the reasons, you know, and I've alluded to some of the reasons why historically it had performed well, but that was attractive. That was attractive to come into something that looked like it was exciting. And the question was, could you improve that? Could you take that to the next level or sustain that? I mean, if an organization is punching you know way above its weight there's always a danger of reversion to the mean that, that was a challenge you know could you take that even further so that there's a dual answer to that sort of personal love for northern ireland and real interest in how well queens was doing in this but yeah no i didn't think i wanted to go back into a tto once you have been running your own companies you sort of feel that that's probably not for you but it's a very good grounding. So, you know, having flipped and flopped occasionally from doing this for various different universities and then taking time out to try your own ventures is probably the best skill set for a TTO. And, you know, I firmly believe that if you haven't run a startup from nothing, then it's very difficult to know how to form these things and work with entrepreneurs. And yeah. a general 
industrial business background from a large corporate can be helpful and useful, but it's not the same as knowing bad day in a startup is a near-death experience, game over. And having that sensitivity to how difficult it is and what high the stakes are for these early stage ventures and the sympathy, if you like, just having sat around you know, many boards in the past, but particularly your own, how do you make this survive? You know, it's a mixed bag in terms of return for me. You know, it's been okay. It's not been life-changing. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't be doing this job. You know, it was sufficiently remunerative and helpful. But either way, whether you've given that a go and you've learned some lessons and it didn't quite work out, or you've given it a go and it worked out, it's a very good grounding for tech transfer. There's probably some elements of that question that I didn't fully respond to. No, no, that's fine. My next question is sort of a follow-up to that, in that what would you say to someone who is starting out in a TTO today? Okay, yeah. So I I would start with that. I mean, it's about the team, and there's often a desire to pack it with technical expertise, and you do need some of that. You need to get the right configuration. If they've got roles that require them to be able to understand the tech, in a deep level, then that's important. But you need a diverse set of skills. And it strikes me that tech transfer is drawing on more and more skill sets. So it's about the composition of the team. But moreover, it's about the network. So it's about that social capital. Always assume that there will be people outside your organization who know more about this particular venture than you do and go and look for them. That's really, really important, I think. That was the key for me. And that was the learning through the innovation comment. Through iCure, the learning is you need a really solid process because it's difficult and it's an art and in some senses it therefore gets chaotic. You don't have a rigorous set of processes internally, you know, that sort of agile scrum process just to keep on top of it and to make sure that you've got all the right people internally involved. You'll just get lost and things will get confusing. And if you don't have that connected to the external world, those entrepreneurs, then it's problematic. So, you know, I come back to those three mantras it's about validation whatever you need to do you need to get a good way of externalizing the validation as many eyes and ears on a particular problem as possible don't think you can do it through some sort of committee in your tto or in the university certainly don't think that you can do that on a gut hunch or through some complicated business plan that you've written get out there it is the lean startup mantra get out the building i think that's good advice final question Is there anything else that we haven't covered that you would like to tell people about? What's interesting is the connection. I mean, this is going to become more and more important as an agenda. I mean, it's important in Northern Ireland because places like Northern Ireland need lots of deep tech, potentially high growth startups. And, you know, it's all hands to the bump. So the leveling up agenda for me is really, really important. And we come at it quite proud of the companies that we create and companies that grow and the companies that we float and the difference they make to the local economy. But that won't crack it. So it's also about how do we use some of these methodologies to support non-startups, you know, the scale-ups, the native scale-ups that are doing their own thing, but need an injection of innovation or technology. And what we're finding is that some of the same processes and methodologies, the lean methodology, the sort of iCure approach, works in that space also. So we're starting to experiment and we're working with partner universities and Innovate UK test this sort of customer discovery validation idea for existing companies for the next wave of scale-ups. And that's the bit that I'm currently excited about. If we can be pulling on both of those agendas, we're creating our own deep tech companies 
from the technology and the R&D of our own research base, brilliant. I want to do more of that. I want to be more efficient at that. But I also want to find ways of ensuring that we can support other local companies and the companies UK-wide, opening up some of those programs to them. So it's not just university spin-outs. It's the brightest and best startups across the UK. So we've launched the pilot, Scaling at the Edge, with Helix and the North by Northwest Consortium and with Innovate as well. That for me is a kind of an interesting sort of segue. What next? If you crack this problem, if you get a really good solution for now, it's always constant beta, but if you get a good solution now for tech transfer, how can you widen that, particularly in the context of COVID, particularly in the context of the perturbations around Brexit, all hands on deck to support other you know, non-university startups to allow universities and the networks around them to support those. That's the next exciting agenda for me, I think. Amazing. I think that's a good call to arms to finish on. Brian, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. It's been fantastic talking to you and learning more about Cubis and Northern Ireland, which admittedly I didn't know too much about before, but hopefully this will also help put the region on the map for our international listeners. Well, you're very welcome. When lockdown ends, you're very welcome to visit. I look forward to actually being allowed to travel again. Anywhere, anywhere. (laughs) Anywhere, yes. (laughs) Thank you very much, Brian. You're welcome, Gary. Nice to chat to you. Talking Tech Transfer is hosted by me, Thierry Hales. It is produced by Global University Venturing, a Morsonia limited publication. You can find us at globaluniversityventuring.com, on LinkedIn as Global University Venturing, or on Twitter at GU Venturing. Our sound engineer is Mark Chatterley from In Ear Production. You can find them on inearproduction.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, make sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an interview. We'd also really love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or if you share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. It really helps us grow our audience. You can also reach out to me directly with feedback. Just email thelis at globaluniversityventuring.com. That is T-H-E-L-E-S at globaluniversityventuring.com. Until next time, have a great week, everyone. Goodbye. Thank you.